0: Hello and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Recalling the high school teaching of my guest today, one of his former students fondly remembered that he, quote, taught history by having the class read Shakespeare. He was also the first Russian language teacher. He had this endearing tick of rolling up his tie and letting it unroll as he lectured. The teacher in question is the extraordinary Mr. Stan Moore of Rich East High School in the southern Chicago suburb of Park Forest, Illinois. I graduated from East in 1971, and like so many others over the years, I had the good fortune to have been taught history by Stan. From him, we learned that history and civilization encompassed not only politics, but also the arts and ideas. We learned as well that one could trace themes and patterns in the past across a rich mix of print and visual sources, and how those same themes and patterns resonated and shaped the present. And we learned as well to think about and appreciate places and cultures other than our own, as through the magic of a slide projector, we vicariously traveled abroad with Stan, his wife and fellow teacher Jan, and their children across Europe and above all in the Soviet Union. Most important for me, and I suspect for all of us who were Stan's students, he modeled and continues to model the life of the mind, and and if I may say, learning for life. And especially for those of us who became educators ourselves, he models what it means to teach well with and about humanity, reason and imagination. All three qualities are hallmarks of his annual semi-epic Christmas poem, through which he catches us up on his travels and family news and also of his poetry in the wonderful volume, Forty Odd Verses, which he published in 2020. For all these reasons and more, I've wanted to converse with him for the podcast, and I'm delighted he could join me today. So, Stan, welcome. It's so great to have you on. Uh, Thank you
1: very much. I'm I'm very pleased to join the uh, uh, Gustavus family, briefly.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So you're in Chicago, uh, kind of on Lakeshore Drive. I'm here in Minneapolis. And... Here we are through the wonders of technology, talking to one another. It's great. And um, we were before we started recording, you, you have a niece who graduated from Gustavus, right? Kim? Is it Kim Weiberg? Uh, that's right. Uh, a niece, Kim,
1: and a nephew, David, who both uh, graduated from Gustavus, as, do- as did their
0: father, Jim Weiberg. Wonderful. Um, And they're now all on my list to podcast with at some some point. Uh, uh, So we haven't seen each other in a few years. Uh, Hope to see you again. We saw each other before COVID, of course, and uh, hope to see you in person again. Um, um, But this will this will this will compensate uh, for now um let's talk as i as i like to do in the podcast about your your origins um where you where you grew up i know you have a minneapolis connection but just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um what your parents were doing uh
1: yeah my i <clears throat> i was born and uh grew up in minneapolis um <clears throat> my father was uh i i was born during the depression or at the beginning of that so uh Dad and Mother had to struggle to uh keep our family going uh mm-hmm. My dad uh went to beloit College as did uh a couple other members of the family uh he uh eventually became a banker he uh in minneapolis he uh well, he went to World War one as a young lieutenant assigned to a balloon squadron. And wow. that interrupted his Beloit education. But when he came back, he finished and uh, eventually landed in Minneapolis and married my mother, who uh, uh, became a uh, librarian. Uh, I grew up on New York Avenue, which is an idyllic uh, street in Minneapolis, southwest yeah.
0: Minneapolis, oh, under well. palm trees. What was, you, what was the number of uh, your number house? Was, do, you, do, you uh, the, do you remember the number of your house? Yeah, it was fifty three seventeen York
1: Avenue. Okay, I uh, which was Minnehaha Creek, where yeah. uh, as kids we went skiing and skating. Um, so uh, those were my Minneapolis were my uh, origins. There, I went to high, Southwest High School eventually, and. Uh, uh, was interested at first in journalism, thought I'd become a journalist, but uh, eventually discovered that I was too shy to <laughs> interview a lot of people, so uh, <laughs> I became a teacher by default,
0: more or less. <laughs> well, so were you, did you choose Beloit College because your uh, I do not remember if you said both parents or your dad had gone there, or or right? Uh, I I was uh, undecided uh,
1: about what to do with my life at that point, and so I just sort of followed the tradition and went to Beloit College, where my dad had graduated, and his sister, my Aunt Katie, and my grandfather was uh, the minister of the Presbyterian Church on the campus uh, adjacent to the Beloit campus. Um, so uh, Beloit was a kind of family center, and that's mm-hmm. when I began my uh, college education.
0: And it's of course a great liberal arts college like Gustavus. Were you were you already interested in in history by the time you got to Beloit, or, or did, did that uh, develop there?
1: I, I was uh, I was beginning to get an interest in in history, uh, particularly. Uh, European history and uh, began to read a bit about it, um, and uh, some of my fraternity mates were aiming to teach, uh, so that's more or less what I fell into at uh, Beloit. But uh, I enjoyed the, the uh, I enjoyed the history courses as well as courses in French and. Uh, European literature, especially.
0: Were there were there particular professors that you uh, remember? Are there particular professors you recall yeah, fondly there were or three, not? There
1: were three outstanding uh, English professors, very different in temperament and style. My favorite was John Shepherd Eels Jr., who taught eighteenth-century uh, literature. Uh, He taught a course in Milton that I took, and in in my senior year, I had him for advanced courses in writing. Uh, The other two were uh, Fred White and uh, Chad Walsh. Uh, Chad was a poet, and uh, uh, the the three of them... uh, more or less, were my mentors at uh, Beloit, particularly John Eels.
0: I love how you can recall those three teachers and how important they were to you as mentors. Um, you know, when I think of you, and anyone who knows you, we think of you and Jan and the kids traveling. It, it seems all over the world, but 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 did you, did you had you traveled abroad already as uh, either as Uh, a young person with your family or as a student at Beloit? Uh,
1: The first time I went to uh, visit my cousins in England uh, was about 1948 when uh, I managed to spend the summer uh, in uh, north of uh, London in the family uh, place called Downham Market in the midst of the uh, Norfolk Fens. Uh, I, I we traveled to Scotland then, and uh, I had a good glimpse of uh, of London and England in general, which I had much cherished. And
0: so that was your, that was your first trip abroad. It sounds like, yeah. How did you um, How did you get into Russian? I mean, the other thing is anyone who. Knows you, you know, you were teaching Russian language, Russian, I don't remember what the course was, sure. Russian civilization uh, that I took with you. D- during the career, when I graduated from Beloit College,
1: uh, the draft was on, so I had to decide whether to join up or wait in limbo for the draft to catch me up. So I signed up for an extra year, and uh, shortly after, uh, joining the Army they gave me a language test and sent me to uh, the Army Language School at Monterey, California, uh, which had a marvelous program that they the army had developed uh, a comprehensive uh, program in Russian uh, led by Russian native Russian speakers uh, so I spent a year there and that uh, Got me into uh, the Russian language fairly uh, fairly well, and eventually, when uh, Sputnik went off, and high schools began to uh, establish Russian in their curriculum, I was called upon to teach Russian as well as uh, uh, as, as uh, history and English. Um, I uh, and for, for teachers, of, for American teachers of Russian, there were a number of opportunities, uh, thanks to Khrushchev's uh, law, uh, to, uh, to uh, join exchanges to Russia. Mm-hmm. So I taught uh, with three other, students, three other Americans who are also taught Russian. Uh, we spent a month in Moscow and a month in Leningrad. Uh, each teaching at a different uh, high school, teaching English. Uh, that was an extraordinary experience. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and on another it. summer, I got this uh, study at Moscow State University. Wow. So smart. those were my two uh, entries into uh, Russian culture. And uh, after that, I, I, we had a number of
0: family uh Camping trips to Russia. After that, it's amazing to me, I and mean, that was so early in your career, too. So, a couple of things occurred to I me. Mean, one is my colleagues who teach language at Gustavus say, and I agree. I learned this from you as well, though I didn't study Russian, the language, with you. But as you just kind of said, without, I mean, language isn't isn't entry into the whole culture of a of a, of a place. Um, I'm wondering. Were you, were you developing your interest in Russian history, sort of as at the same time, I guess, as you were as you were learning Russian and, and then teaching teaching in the Soviet Soviet Union?
1: Uh, right, right. Uh, the, <clears throat> the
0: Russian history was
1: very much in, in the front of my uh, consciousness. Traveling through the the country uh, I, after the Korean War, I uh, studied under the GI Bill at the University of Minnesota in a program called Russian Area Studies, and there uh, a uh, professor, George Anderson, was an expert in Russian history, himself being an old cavalry officer in Russia and with uh, deep knowledge of Russian history. That's where I began to expand my interest into... Uh, Russian literature and uh, history. Uh, later I uh, had a leave of absence from high school teaching to Yale University where I was a John Hay fellow for a year. Wow. And there I met uh, Renee Willock, a, a, a famous Dostoevsky scholar, and took his course in uh, Dostoevsky in his European setting. Uh, setting. And uh, that uh, got me uh,
0: pretty deep into Dostoevsky's novels. Which <laughs> I much enjoyed. Yeah, you all, you, you taught you taught. Uh, I know we read Dostoevsky. Um, you taught you taught so well. Um, d- dark sometimes. Wow, i was just thinking back to reading some of Dostoevsky. Good Lord, <laughs> the um, so those are great experiences during during the Korean War. So you were, were you, I'm assuming you were doing translation. Is that the idea? Uh, the uh, we we were sent in various
1: directions. Uh, those of us who graduated from the Army Language School, I had the good fortune of going to Bavaria instead of to Japan oh, or Korea. Korea, and Very so I, I sat for almost a year listening to Russian uh, pilots talk good. to ground control. But <laughs> I didn't get much by way of. Uh, uh, my way of communications, except for <laughs> how do you read me? said the pilot to the ground <laughs> control. And, uh, uh, so that was kind of the extent of my contribution to the army. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, but I guess a good way to keep up your Russian and continue to practice. <laughs> Um, Too bad, too bad you couldn't speak with them. How do you read me? Just fine. Thank you. (laughs) So when did you, when did you come to Rich East? Was it like in the late 1950s? Was that, was that, and was that your first high school teaching gig? Uh, My first uh, high school teaching
1: job was in a little town in Minnesota called Spring Valley. Oh, sure. Uh, After a year there, uh, it was easier to get a job once you'd uh, managed a first year of teaching. So, uh, Dr. Andre, who is the superintendent of Rich East, uh, was in um, Rochester briefly with his wife. He asked me if I'd come for an interview. So, the next year I joined the faculty at the Rich Township High School, uh, a very different place from Spring Valley, where it was, uh, the town was pretty much brand new post war. Right. And uh, the uh, <clears throat> The high school is an exciting place to teach because they're recruiting young teachers in all fields. And uh, I first taught uh, a uh, course called Unified Studies, which combined English and history. And the administration uh, encouraged us to reform the class, make it more substantial. and. Uh, uh, so it, it became a uh, humanities uh, combination of literature and history, which I much enjoyed teaching as a, uh, as a freshman uh, class. Uh, this was uh, 19, uh, 1957
0: when I first joined the uh, faculty at East. Okay, 10 years before I... Uh... Is that right? Yeah, ten I, I came in nineteen
1: sixty seven
0: is when I started. Um, yeah, and Park Forest, as you know, you and you and Jan, your wife Jan were part of the uh, history historical society there. I, it really was, as you said, it was kind of it was a post war community, kind of one of these planned, not quite a Levitt town, but you know, planned community with parks, and I remember all the, all the with all the street names that <laughs> named <laughs> after Native, Native Americans who were no longer around except on street <laughs> signs the sock and this and that um, but yeah, Rich East was I, I feel so fortunate to have gone there there were some amazing teachers you and so many so many others um, yeah it must have been exciting. it sounds like you were given a chance to to experiment and and to figure out how to teach the humanities. Uh, in, in some exciting ways, where you, you were certainly good at that. I mean, one of the things I loved about your teaching, um, and I try not as successfully in my own teaching, the so combination of history and literature um, that you were you were always doing. Were there um, was it was it when you were at Rich East that you met Jan, or was that before you came to Rich East? Uh, right. Jan came to Richie's the year after I did to teach
1: mathematics. Okay. And uh, in 1960, we got married and uh, lived happily ever after until she passed away a few years ago. Yeah, um, wonderful. wonderful yeah, we were fortunate to have uh, two wonderful kids who accompanied us even in their youth to uh, – on. Camping trips, especially in Europe, but also in in Russia and uh, Eastern
0: East, Eastern Europe. Doug Doug uh, and Barb, who are now grown and doing their uh, own things, uh, uh, yeah, it was a
1: very happy, very fortunate arrangement, so that we could take the summers off to uh, take our kids camping, and uh, one year I had a. Uh, <laughs> I had a leave of the absence. We went to uh, Montpellier in southern France, where the kids uh, at two and six uh, began their uh, study of French. <laughs> <laughs> they were only they, they, were, only, uh, they were the only non-French speaking kids. in uh, <laughs> There are schools, school and preschool, so Paul Jan and I studied French at the the university, this was a year, 1968, which was explosive from the uh, point of view of uh, college students in France who began their rebellion in the spring of that year. And we got to Montpellier after camping our way through uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, we discovered that the, the uh, university, except for our program, was closed because of student <laughs> rebellion. We just managed to escape. Uh, we we were in Prague when uh, actually we were in um, uh, we were in Russia in the Crimea uh, camping when uh, we heard the news from neighbor rad- radios that the Warsaw Pact uh, had invaded Czechoslovakia. This was 19, 1968. And uh, so we uh, uh, we more or less made our way to France <laughs> out of uh, a uh, an Eastern Europe that was experiencing a reaction after their uh, attempted uh Rebellion against uh,
0: Soviet occupation. Right, the, the the Prague Spring, which was which was smashed by the yeah. by the Soviets. Wow, so um, that's that's all incredible. I te- I now teach a course, Stan, on, on just on 1968, mostly focused on the U.S., um, but a little bit on what was happening yeah. abroad since it since it was so important in Paris, the students, the strike. Um, you know, one of the things I, of the, I'm glad you mentioned camping. You mentioned it several times. I always wonder. <laughs> well, one, I don't like camping, but two, um, you. I mean, what, what, what prompted you and Jan? I mean, to, you, how did you do this? You just sort of decided we're going to go abroad. Is that when you rented? Or how did you own the famous Volkswagen camper? I can still picture that in slides you showed us. I mean, what, what, what motivated you to start? the camping across Europe and the Soviet well, Union. Uh, I, I guess we decided whenever we needed a new car, we'd get a
1: Volkswagen and, uh, <laughs> and, and start uh, a camping tour in, in Europe. Uh, when I was, during World War II, when I was a uh, teenager, um, I became what they call Cub Chief at uh, Camp Ottawa, which was uh, sponsored by Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis. At oh uh, uh, age here. fifteen, when all the older leaders had gone off to war, uh, us young people had to step into their 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 jobs. I became Cub Chief and uh, my my friends became beach director and quartermaster and so hmm. on. So we experienced camping uh, early on in our teenage years, not only as campers but as uh, leaders. And uh, I felt the call of camping, <laughs> of uh, counseling. After long after that, we had uh, at Camp where We slept under ke- uh, antedated cavalry tents on wooden <laughs> platforms that housed about eight or ten kids apiece. Each of us had a tent to manage. And uh I was uh I was appointed Cub Chief, I guess, because I was uh I'd had some experience as a den chief, as a boy scout, <laughs> as a Cub Scout. Yeah. So uh, I guess that was the origins of my camping. I think that's interesting. I think don't enough to go along with these camping <laughs> expeditions. I'm not sure she was as enthusiastic as I was about camping.
0: <laughs> I did not know that part of your your history about the cub cub chief and all that. And is your don't you have a your brother is still I mean I know you have a brother. He's still involved in scouting right here in the Twin Cities. Uh, my my brother
1: Dave in Minneapolis there uh is still uh, camp director at Camp Ijuwa where we grew up, and uh, is the scoutmaster of the, the famous Troop, Troop 100, which is composed largely of Hmong uh, hm kids, really? uh, who proved to, proved to be the perfect campers after they arrived at the, uh, Edison High School, where Dave Mm. was teaching at the time and needed uh, considerable guidance uh, in their adjustments to uh, American culture. Dave has a couple of books, including a recent one that describe his experiences as a uh, a Boy Scout and camp leader of uh, the Hmong community. He and uh, some of his fellow Hmongs helped to... uh, Get Mimua, um, a uh, place in the Minnesota Senate, along with uh, uh, my student, Ann Hiller, and Rest. Right. Ann Hiller Rest, I guess you'd call her. Uh, so the Hmongs became a very success, although some were lost to St. Paul gangs. Those who uh, performed of uh, for Dave and where he, some of his proteges were not only rescued from that gang uh mentality but uh were were very successful in ma- in many ways. Uh, Dave still is the uh director who uh encourages his Hmong proteges to come to camp and they're excellent campers having been uh Outdoor, an outdoor culture for ever since they supported uh, the Americans in Laos during World War during during the Korea, Korean Korean uh, during
0: the Vietnam War. Right, and it's so interesting. You, I know you sent me. I, I have, we have one of Dave's uh, books. Uh, yeah, that, that's a whole interesting. History and uh, Gustavus, we, we have a number of Hmong students, including um, alums who, one of whom is uh, really, really leading Hmong scholar, uh, Chia Vang, and then Samantha Vang is a representative in the state legislature. Yeah. And you mentioned Anne, it's so funny, Anne Rest, because I we, we um, listeners should know that uh, an alum has organized a kind of a regular um, Meet up, or maybe you would say gam stand with with Stan online, and that's how I realized. Oh my gosh, this, this this alum Ann Rest is also in the Minnesota State Senate. She and I haven't managed to get together yet, but but uh, hopefully we we will. Um, so when you were, I mean, when, when you and Jan and the kids were camping, what did you did you did you fly somewhere and then get the car or the van how did that just tell me about how that works like the logistics of it all yeah uh, the
1: the first time we did that
0: uh we applied through
1: the AAA. that had an international office that was in touch with in whenever you uh plan in those days whenever you plan a trip to russia and i'm hopefully that there's still possibilities but you worked always through entries who approved your itinerary and helped uh, helped identify what campsites were available to foreigners? And the fortunate thing was that Russians also appeared on these international in these international campsites. So we met particularly uh, Russians there, including one family that we were in touch with for some years. Uh, so the logistics began in Chicago with the AAA. Uh, offices and interviews with uh, their uh, Russian experts who were in touch with Interest and managed to uh, get our program approved in Russia, camping approved. And uh, then we uh, we ourselves managed to fly to Munich or Luxembourg or wherever, the, wherever our um Volkswagen camper or sedan was meeting us uh from there we piled into our a new car and headed east for eastern europe and uh and, and Russia so the logistics were complicated but they were simplified by uh access to uh the american automobile association in chicago and uh uh so we we uh they helped us negotiate what passports and visas we needed for the occasion
0: yeah that's what i was asking it sounds like it would be complicated but three three cheers for the triple a AAA, i guess yeah. <laughs> And they because what i mean what i remember is just the, i mean all of us remember um the slides i mean the slides of your trips that you incorporated into the into the teaching i mean there was no powerpoint there was none of that it was a, projector with slides and just of, I mean, it seemed like everywhere across Europe you were, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and, and, and Russia. Uh, I know you, you eventually went to China. When did, when did that start? Was that when you were, you were teaching at Rich East or did it come later?
1: Uh, as soon as I retired from, we retired from, uh, teaching at Rich East, uh, we had two years, uh. Teaching in China, which we pretty much managed on our own uh, by uh, through the help of the, uh, the Chinese consulate in Chicago, which then was recruiting uh, teachers of English to sort of supplant the Russian teachers that, uh, that had earlier been uh, hmm. uh, established there. Uh, the reforms of Deng Xiaoping ha- helped help to. Uh, loosen up things with China, and provided opportunities for exchange teachers like ourselves. We uh, were given a list of universities that might be uh, interested in having foreign teachers come, and we applied to several, but chose um, Southwest China Teachers University near Chongqing, who welcomed not only me, but uh, Jian. That was an exciting year, 1988, 89, because it ended in Tiananmen Square, yeah, well. and uh, our our students were sympathetic with the rebels in uh, Beijing, and uh, we uh, we watched on our television, surrounded by our Chinese students in our apartment, of uh, events uh, on Tiananmen Square. My daughter, uh, who graduated from MIT. Uh, was scheduled for, for uh, at least one lecture at Tsinghua University in uh, Beijing to uh, uh, inform her colleague, Chinese colleagues about what uh, advanced, uh, what uh, artificial intelligence meant at, in her pharmaceutical company that she was working for at the time. They uh, uh Uh, Barb and her friend Sherry and a colleague from Berkeley all landed in Beijing, right in the midst of this uh, rebellion, and their friends from Tsinghua University bicycled with them onto the square during the hunger strike and uh, shortly before the crackdown came when Deng Deng Xiaoping ordered uh, tanks into the square to end the rebellion we We came out a little bit earlier than we'd expected, but uh, and, and spent a year at home until one of our students in uh, wrote us and uh, asked us to come for a second year. She managed to get us uh, not only Chan and me, but our son Doug. Uh, the three of us went to China for a second year and uh, we were, were headquartered in. Kunming, the capital of Yunnan province in the southern part of China, a very interesting place we found because we had uh, uh, minority students who were – we we met them uh, during uh, uh, holidays in the southern part of Yunnan. Some were Buddhist, some were Muslim. uh, And – so it was a very interesting second year in China teaching uh, teaching English there,
0: and we had the and good luck of having uh, Doug along as well. That's all great. In the, I mean, it's amazing about Bar and Tiananmen Square. We, when you came when you came back for the second year, was it? I mean, did you notice a real difference in the atmosphere or among the students uh, because Tiananmen <clears throat> happened?
1: We managed to uh, go back to our original university and and uh, talk to students who had survived the uh, reaction to Tiananmen Square. Uh, many were disappointed with their assignments as teachers of English, but uh, the atmosphere had uh, improved somewhat by then. And Deng Xiaoping was still in power, but he was encouraging a more... Uh, pro-Western attitude. And this was reflected in the few people that we uh, got in touch with again in uh, 1991. Uh, we, we had some excitement uh, coming out of China in 1991 because that was the year that Russia was uh, uh, falling apart. Really? And we had to wait until Gorbachev's arrest was over for the was to open again. I, we had to go to Beijing and uh, uh, organize our uh, trip home through the Trans-Siberian Railway oh and uh, Eastern Europe. And um, when we arrived in Moscow, we saw the results of uh, the attempted coup, the reactionary coup there, which Yeltsin and Gorbachev managed to uh, out uh, outplay. Uh, but uh, we, we ended up on Lubyanka Square, where um, uh, the, the statue of Dzerzhinsky, the infamous NKVD uh, leader, the statue had just been toppled. Sure. And so uh, it was an exciting time to be in uh, uh, in Moscow. We were accused later of being uh, fomenting re- rebellion everywhere we <laughs> went, it seemed like
0: <laughs> I mean, i I've always I've always been amazed. Not just me, all of your anyone knows you the way the ways in which your travels have intersected with these you know historic events, moments, usually <laughs> moments of incredible crisis, at least for the authorities. Um, when you say you were accused, what happened? Were you actually arrested?
1: Um,
0: <clears throat>
1: I, I uh, we were never uh, arrested as. Uh, as political sc- uh, spies, the the Russians considered the uh, language school in Monterey as a spy school. Mm. Uh, we knew that because when we arrived there, when I arrived there in 1951, to study Russian, there was a uh, the the news the, 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 the local newspaper. Had an article on the front page that uh, there was a copy of Pravda's front page. It featured uh, the Army Language School as a spy school. So it was then that I knew that as a spy. <laughs> and perhaps you're and I had to uh, suppress that information whenever I, uh, whenever we traveled to Russia. Uh, perhaps you're referring to the one time I got arrested in uh, Leningrad, oh, St. Yes. Petersburg. When uh, I was I was uh, taking pictures of what apparently some citizen thought was uh, would be used for anti-Soviet propaganda. It was raining slightly, and I had a camera under my trench coat, which I uh, came out, which came out occasionally for pictures, (laughs) and at one point uh, I was arrested by a vigilante, a citizen with a red armband, (laughs) and he insisted I go to a a police station. I I thought of running away and joining (laughs) crowds during (laughs) our trek to the police station, I thought that was probably not a good idea. (laughs) Uh, When we got to the police station, I thought, I wonder if this is the station where uh, Raskolnikov was interviewed by together, <laughs> But anyway, I played like the dumb tourist, but I could hear uh, the Russian exchange between this vigilante and the police. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, and I can still remember it in Russian, of course, every citizen has the right to photograph whatever he wants. And so the vigilante was... Uh, put down and had to leave, and I was, uh, I was
0: freed to go. <laughs>
1: wow.
0: That's an amazing story. And also, by the way, wearing a trench coat and a camera under it, that sounds like a spy to me. So, you, you, you were very lucky. <laughs> and, of, and of course, I love how your, your thoughts go to Raskolnikov, right, in that state, that state always thinking of literature. Um, you have so many amazing stories from your travels that's a that's a whole separate podcast i wonder if we we circle back to to rich east for a bit what are what are some of the memories you have again good bad ugly um of teaching there that 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 stand out i mean you taught there for what like at least two almost 30 years i think um what Um, are are some what are some of the memories you have of, of teaching there uh
1: I, I have uh, almost uh, mostly good good memories of uh, teaching Richies. Um, we had hero day now and then, which kind I of remember. disturbed the administration. But there were kids dressed up as uh, their heroes for yes. day. Uh, I remember with fondness the uh, students I had. Um, they they went in various directions, but I managed to keep track of many of them. And uh, their own experiences were those that I counted most uh, important in teaching. Uh, whenever I made an assignment, <laughs> whenever I asked them to write a composition, it was usually experience-based. and. Uh, uh, from those uh, compositions, I, I learned a lot about uh, the students and their their uh, context, their hopes, their aspirations. Yes, uh, and th- those I guess I remember most fondly. And uh, some of them are some of them are still uh, uh, in touch with. Uh, thanks thanks to zoom we've had a few meetings and right. uh, we uh,
0: I, I uh, much enjoy hearing about them 50 years later <laughs> I know it's amazing I've been a part of those couple of those zooms it's incredible I mean first of all the range of the range of occupations the range of careers the range of callings whatever words we want to use among your your students um, not just teachers but but authors and just all kinds of amazing, interesting stuff. And then, um, I remember, I remember finally Hero Day. (laughs) I remember, um, Bill Burkhart, we both know Bill coming as, uh, I think he wore all white and spectacles. He was coming as John Lennon. Uh, I think he was maybe missing (laughs) the long hair, but Hero Day. And I remember also, um, well, I remember, and just know. I mean, Bill and I used to bug you and Jan probably as we dropped by. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd kindly entertain us with uh, conversation in your in your what I think of as your den, bookline den, and fireplace. That had a huge impact on us, and I'm sure others. Um, as one of your former students commented in an email to me once, this was Sheldon Stromquist, who became a labor historian professor at the University of Iowa. Uh, said to me, you know, Stan was you were the kind of the first intellectual he had met, and I think for a lot of us that that was that was really true, um, and that and that influence continues. I certainly try to do what you did with with us, which is to get to know my students and to keep up with them. And I always think of you when I uh, I'm having lunch with alums who've graduated from Gustavus, and you know, or are emailing me years later it's just that is such a gratifying part of teaching i think to see what what your former students are are doing um i wonder um did you have run-ins with the administration ever at, at rich east um you know in retrospect i feel quite uh,
1: fortunate uh, to have had administrators that pretty much ignored me uh, <laughs> and uh, allowed allowed me to uh, uh, to put in whatever uh, books I asked for, I tended to I, I tended to ignore the uh, official textbooks, especially in uh, American and European Western civilization, um, because of this sort of bland and uh, right uh, uh, character. And could, and substituted a number of paperback books uh, that I felt were appropriate uh, as both literature and history in yes. the courses in Russian Civ and Western Civ that I taught. So I felt fortunate in that, in that sense to uh, have been in a place where there was freedom that kind of freedom for at least somebody like me who didn't. Uh, uh, like some of the uh, prescribed curricula.
0: Yeah, you uh, were fortunate and we were fortunate because I, yeah, I mean yeah, I, don't I don't recall reading a school. single I don't recall reading a single textbook and thank God in any yeah. of your classes. Your classes honestly Stan, I mean I've I've I, I somewhere I still have the syllabi because I mean I always say to my students, if only I'd done all the reading, you know, um, that you had on those syllabi. They were amazing and the combination of Texts and literature, uh, all, all just just extraordinary, like extraordinary. One example was uh, to order a bunch of um, Herman
1: Melville's obscure novel called Israel Potter mm-hmm. as the first uh, reading in American literature, mm-hmm. Amer- American history. I mean, yeah. uh, Israel Potter is a story of three. Uh, leaders of the American Revolution who are kind of characterized, uh, caricatured uh, in the novel. John Paul Jones, uh, Ben Franklin, and Ethan Allen, and uh, their uh, adventures as um, uh, a reflection of uh, what uh, Melville thought of the could make of the original colonial uh, history. Uh, That was just one example of a of a kind of far out resource managed to uh, collect and pass.
0: Right, and that um, for me that encapsulates. doesn't really do justice to your, your teaching approach because it was so, so much more than that, but kind of encapsulate it where you encapsulates it where you're using, you're using, this is what I learned. I'm using that one book, which is fiction, but to tell us, to teach us something about the past. Um, and I just think, and there's so many, so many interesting things there in that approach because, you know, some of the, I mean what what is history what is the past right That's is right. to what extent is it is it in fact a, a, a fiction but um that i think even today is somewhat unusual <laughs> students are used to history being sort of a chronology right this happened then that happened and then you know this event that event and boring yeah. um and and i learned so much from you i don't mean just the content but just in terms of approaching how to approach the past through literature, through art, through ideas, you were certainly doing cultural history and intellectual history. Um, I don't know whether those were terms <laughs> that were even used at the. I suppose they were, but that's what you were doing, and that has certainly certainly stayed with me to to this day. Um, I wonder. Um, tell us a little bit about teaching in in the USSR. This is why you were still teaching at Rich East. What was that like? What were what were some of the similarities and and differences between um, the two experiences. I, I remember
1: um, how uh, I, actually I was I, I was pleasantly uh, pleasantly um, surprised by how. Uh, uh, Russian high school students could enter into discussion. I think they'd been used to a more remote, uh, a more rote kind of uh, mm. instruction. But uh, when, once they were, um, once they were somehow informalized and realized that their experiences and uh, their ideas counted for something. They were willing to participate in discussion of texts that were not all that uh, inspiring, but mm-hmm. could uh, invoke uh, ideas and uh, experiences that they had had. Uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, system was quite formalized, of course, and concentrated uh, on centralized, on centralized uh, dogma but in fact, it was impressive how many uh, uh, how many classes a Russian high school student took at once, as much as twelve or thirteen uh, sure. subjects, wow. ranging from math to uh, uh, history to uh, literature, and so uh, it was. That that was a uh, surprisingly positive. Uh, uh, Feeling I took away from the Russian uh, educational system, it was beginning to loosen up, especially under uh, um, Khrushchev's uh, attempt at uh, thawing out the uh, uh, more dogmatic aspects of uh, Russian education. Right
0: under under Stalin, and were you so were you teaching English? in using English language texts or how did that work What were you teaching? Uh, I, I
1: was teaching um from English language texts that were provided by uh, uh, by by the Russian, by the uh, Russian authorities so I had to use the uh, the the Russian texts which emphasized of course sort of socialist realism and uh, Jack London and uh uh, Jack London was probably the favorite among the uh, among the students there. They knew about Martin Eden and uh, um, Jack London's uh, work. Also Hemingway. There were, there were fragments of these uh, American authors I could uh, use from their own textbooks. In China, on the other hand, I managed to uh, send. Uh, quite a few paperback books in, in considerable number through the mail. And uh, in China, I managed to use actual actually Western American uh, sources. And because uh, George Soros had provided, well, that was in Central Asia where we had a later experience. George Soros had provided money for Xerox uh, Kiosks in the, in the town, and that was a great great boon to uh, English teachers who could uh, uh, who, who could make copies from books of uh, the fragments you wanted them to to read before the discussion occurred.
0: That's amazing. This is all. Um Well, it's pre-internet. It's pre-sending PDFs and (laughs) that sort of thing, Xeroxing, i.e. photocopying for students uh, who might be listening is what that (laughs) means. Your your teaching experiences are so, so extraordinary. One thing I remember, well, two memories from me. Um, One, you were teaching us at Rich East and we were in this classroom near the courtyard, if that's what it was. And I remember you standing up. I think you were standing up and kind of using your finger like come with me it was no you said nothing and we filed outside and had class out in the courtyard which was which was great (laughs) it was a nice day it was a beautiful day and god knows what rules maybe you were violating there but we we did it um the other memory memory i have is of you telling us, the students, or maybe it was after we had graduated, I can't remember. But anyway, telling us that one thing that struck you about teaching Russian kids is that they were all in uniform, which somehow made it easier for you to um, individualize them, if that's the right word, You could, that you could really focus in on their faces uh, in a way. I don't know if you recall that, but Yes, I, I
1: recall. I recall saying something like that. I remember being impressed by the the uniformity uh, of the uh, uniforms and, and the kerchief, kerchiefs that they had to wear. But uh, that uh, drew your attention not to what they were wearing, right? but uh, to how they looked in the face. Very yeah. different from the American. Uh, system which uh,
0: uh, or the clothes where clothes can be a distraction. Right. Yeah, I think we. I think you were telling us that as students, we were all. I mean, I was growing a mustache, and we all were trying. I don't know, grow long hair, wear blue jeans. <laughs> challenging this the dress code. Yeah, that's that's exactly what you told us. Um, that despite that uniformity, or ironically, paradoxically, whatever, you could, you really could see them as individuals more. Yeah. Um, we, I want to I I uh, have you talk a little bit about Russia, Ukraine. Um, and I don't mean this, uh, I don't mean for okay. you to you know, give us an analysis, but, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, your feelings are as you've watched this horrible, horrible uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia uh, unfold, it's still, of yeah. course, unfolding as we speak.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm really uh, horrified by what's happening uh, to the Ukraine because of Putin's uh, policy. Putin, who seems to have retreated into a more isolated uh, situation in Moscow, uh, ignoring some of his more liberal <clears throat> advisors. I'm particularly uh, sad about how artists and composers and uh, orchestra directors have been uh, sort of penalized uh, by uh, uh, being uh, dismissed from their their uh, western uh, agenda. Um, I, I'm certainly hopeful that the exchanges that I benefit on benefit from. Um, Will we'll continue on that cultural level. It doesn't look too promising, but um, I think there is something ultimately redeeming about exchanging uh, scholars and teachers and uh, artists on uh, the level below politics. Right. Um, I'm also I, I'm also concerned that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the news from ukraine of course is naturally focused on this uh, uh on the destructive aspects of it especially the bombings of uh, hospitals and libraries and theaters where people are sheltered uh it seems like a, uh, a, a uh, an attempt to uh destroy the country somehow. But what is forgotten sometimes, I think, is uh, how we were um, not alert to whatever peaceful uh, feelings, feelers, were coming out of Russia at the time, going back to uh, as far as, uh, uh, I I don't know, take it back to... uh, uh, at least after World War One, when uh, um, uh, when, the, when the Red Scare yes. appeared, both both after World War One, World War II, McCarthy's uh, um, right. program after World War Two, especially prevented us from uh, really. Focusing on the peaceful aspects of our two cultures and the attempt to um, bring them together in various ways, uh, <clears throat> the advisors, the the advice that President Eisenhower got came uh, largely from the Dulles brothers, who were who somehow interpreted every piece. He, peaceful feeler as phony, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember when uh, Khrushchev came to observe a, a farm in Iowa. Yes. Famous and when Xi Jinping came to Texas and put on a 10-gallon hat, <laughs> surely these were signals that uh, we should be we should focus more on what, uh, uh, we, what we had in common and how trade and uh, uh, could be uh, a, uh, a benefit to both cultures. Yes. And the fact that we ignored uh, Putin's constant uh, uh, claim that uh, pushing NATO to the borders of Russia was uh, something that uh, Russia feared. And that uh, naturally, trying to create a kind of Russian Monroe Doctrine, uh, had right. its—we uh, um, <clears throat> sort of ignored some of the consequences that are uh, pushing for uh, NATO's uh, expansion into the Russian field was not a uh, was possibly not a good idea. There's always a minority in the State Department, I understand. And our professor, John um, Mearsheimer, who's talked to our group here occasionally, has the view that America has to assume some responsibility in not paying attention to uh, what the NATO's expansion might mean to a Soviet leadership.
0: Right. Yeah, to Russian leadership. I agree. I agree with that. I think there hasn't been enough... Attention paid to that, at least in the mainstream uh, media. I, I completely agree with that. Um, and you wonder. I mean, you wonder they needed you, Stan. I know they needed people with some more expertise. I don't, I don't really know how that that was missed. Um, at the same time, Putin. What do you think Putin seems to be motivated by? By this notion of of a of a, of a greater Russia and almost a kind of an ethnic. Cleansing is that is that something that comes out of Russia's past? Yeah. It, it seems like
1: uh, it seems like Putin's uh, experience in the KGB is not a uh, a, a good source for uh, <laughs> for uh, turning him in a better direction. I uh, I, I think that maybe it, it's not so much. Uh, uh, Russian history although he has a sense of uh, grievance over um, yes. our uh, attempt to isolate Russia and to uh, 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 an example is where we more or less back the coup that uh, in 2014 you know, substituted a pro-western to a pro for a pro-russian uh Leader of the Ukraine was not possibly the best idea, and uh, he, I think, rather naturally is uh, he was uh, he he was uh, outraged. Might say at the loss of the uh, whole uh, Soviet perimeter in nineteen ninety one, yes. when uh, fourteen of those republics declared their independence be like California and Texas and the border states, uh, declaring independence and joining some sort of Eastern consortium. I mean, this from his perspective, even though nothing justifies the kind of uh, murder that's uh, occurring in Ukraine today.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, how much of it is a sense of history Putin has, and how much of it is his KGB background and then that the, the the breakup of the of the former Soviet Union. Um, we shall see. It's certainly it's certainly an awful awful uh, yeah. tragedy. I hate I hate to see the, the, the not only the loss of life on on both sides, but but the destruction. To come back to what you're saying, the destruction of the arts. I mean the way the arts are being affected, and then if 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 we enter into a kind of Second Cold War, you were talking about McCarthyism and uh, the, even the Red Scare after World War One. I. I mean, then as you suggest, what happens to those cultural exchanges between yeah. Russia and the United States? That um, you're right about that. I mean, the, the exchanges; those are so important. Where you're you're encountering pe- encountering people, as you said, below the level of politics. I don't know when this was. I was in either. Of either an undergraduate or graduate school, but being able to meet with um, Russian, I guess then they were still Soviet scientists and connecting with them in ways that, you know, I just realized these are these are human beings. These are fellow human beings. They're not the enemy. You know? um, that's so, so important. Um, I, 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 I want to conclude here with, if, if you're willing, with, with a poem that you wrote. It's in the forty odd verses, and it's uh, uh, the poem reflects so much about you. I think, including your love of of Russia, uh, and it's called "Farewell to Leningrad." Would you mind reading that for us? <clears throat> sure. Uh, even, <clears throat> even the dedication that you have there. Yeah.
1: Uh, as you say, it's "Farewell to Leningrad" for the students of School Number Two Thirty Eight in Leningrad. I remembered the classroom talk, the swell of voices about cities and art, and even death, the farewell of Pompous Polonius to his son, and Hemingway's to arms, and Sonnet 66. To master my passion, I searched the city for a way to say goodbye, and saw the granite banks and iron railings stay the yearning rivers saw how the fronts of palaces marshaled by degrees, the flood of flags, the clipped and crooked trees that passed them by, how the rostral columns and fortress arc gave stem and root to the flower of flame that fluttered in the dark above the swollen neva, how Peter mastered his horse in a white gale, but by farewell fluttered in the dark alone, a flame unkept, a flood without the discipline of stone.
0: Thank you. It's one of my favorite poems in this this wonderful collection. Uh, and listeners should should buy it, 40-Odd Verses by D. Stanley Moore. Some of the poems are funny. There's the one about a squirrel peeing up all kinds. Of but um, that's one of my favorites. Thank you for reading. the. Um, when did when did you start writing poetry? Was that when you were when you were younger, even, or is this a more recent development? Uh,
1: when I when I was uh, eleven years old, I remember the girl across the street and I started a, a new neighborhood newspaper called the York Avenue Flash, <laughs> and occasionally to publicize it, we would write little ditties, <laughs> little poems that the uh, uh, encouraged um, uh, people to buy the thing. The, those may be my first attempts at poetry. <laughs> That's
0: and you're still going, uh, still writing, and you're still, uh, it sounds like there's a poetry group at your where you live there in Chicago, and, and you have all these people coming in from the University of Chicago, right, or living there, maybe retirees, and it just sounds like the intellectual life where you live is is quite vibrant, um, which, would, which is exciting. It's just exciting to read about. Um,
1: it's so a very, uh, yeah, it's a very diverse and interesting place to be a senior resident. One of my uh, neighbors uh, and her, her doctor husband are from South Africa, and uh, they uh, harbored Nelson Mandela before he was arrested and uh, they had dinners together, and he lived with them for a while, incognito. Whenever that's somebody good. approached, uh, he retired to the garden and pretended to be a gardener. <laughs> we have stories like this uh, throughout the residency.
0: It's amazing. Um, that's an amazing story, which you shared with us, I think. Uh, and, and, oh, you shared it with me by email. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. I just think, I mean, Stan, you, how old are you now? Uh I'm I'm gonna be ninety-three in wow. uh, April. Lord. Uh you're ninety-three and you are still living the life of the mind. I mean, fully. It's just it's it's um that's always been inspiring to me and I think to all of all of us whoever uh had the wonderful opportunity to 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 learn from you. Uh and so I wish you well. Uh, I, I hope I hope you <laughs> you, you have uh, wonderful, spirited conversations. And you've been doing this even amid COVID, even amid our, our current current plague. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I I always feel like I want to go run and read a book after speaking with you. Um, mm-hmm. You make me want to read and learn always. And so, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for all the years of teaching and of of keeping up with us Um, it's maybe maybe one way a teacher lives forever is in in his or her students and you're certainly living through uh, so many of us Um, so thank thank you very much Greg I I
1: really enjoyed uh, talking to you as always have over the years thank you very much
0: thank you Stan take good care we'll see you in person next time bye-bye okay great Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing, Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.